Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Sepad Pod. Today, I'm joined by someone who's done a great deal of work on these types of themes. I've written an absolutely wonderful book and is right at the cutting edge of a number of issues that, that we're looking at in the SEPAD project. So I'm delighted to say that Dr. Christopher Phillips, a reader in international relations at Queen Mary University, is joining us today. So hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure, Simon. It's, it's wonderful to have you here. Really excited to be able to talk to you a bit about uh, what are some really quite pressing issues. And, um, and I think you're incredibly well placed to talk to us about a number of them. So um, I think we should start at the beginning, really. I mean, Chris, you've written a, an absolutely wonderful book, The Battle for Syria, um, which, is, which came out a couple of years ago with Yale. But I wonder, how did you get to this point of, of someone, someone focused and so heavily involved in, in work on Syria? Um, I often ask myself the same question. Um, it, it, it's one of those funny quirks of fate. Uh, I don't have any connection to Syria in, in terms of family or anything like that. Um, I just as an idealistic student uh, in between my second and third year as undergrad uh, of undergraduate visited Syria for a couple of days whilst um, doing some volunteer work in Lebanon. For a couple of days, right. For a couple of days, literally. Okay. Um, like three days uh, in, I went over to Damascus. Right. Um, and, uh, in that time I just sort of, you know, thought Damascus was this wonderful, incredible city. I mean, a very sort of, you know, young, naive, impressionable person at this point. Um, and I just thought, what an interesting place. So I, I did what obvious, you know, sort of people just about to graduate would do, which is I then went home and Googled jobs in Syria. Obviously. Um, and found, uh, a, a very, very short, um, advert that said, we are National School of Aleppo, we need teachers, Right. Uh, send CV. So I, I, I sent my CV. Um, okay. And, and a few months later it was, I got a very short reply with a contract uh, and a plane number uh, saying, be on this plane at this time. Wow. And I was 22 and said, okay. So I jumped on this plane and found myself as a teacher um, working in Aleppo. Wonderful. Um, and, and I spent, uh, so I spent a year in Aleppo and, and, and really did fall in love with the country then. And that's when I decided, okay, uh, sure. I, I was already thinking about maybe doing a PhD after my studies. Uh, and I thought, well, I'd be really interested in, in, in studying sort of the country of Syria. And, and, and from that, I sort of started looking at different facets of, uh, I was always interested in politics anyway. So different aspects of Syrian politics and then sure. identity politics and then international relations and so on. But it, it really did come out of a three day trip to Damascus. That's and Amazing. a quick Google search. <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, just before we get on to your studies, what was it about those three days that, that struck you? What, what are the memories that you have? That's a really interesting... So, um, well, for one thing, I, I saw Bashar al-Assad in person. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, this was 2003. And um, so this was actually just you know, just after the Iraq war had been launched, the summer sure. of 2003. So it was a very you know politicised time. Uh, back home in the UK when everyone was talking about the Iraq war and I, like many uh, people of a bad generation, was against the war and, and, and had protested against it. And so I was very conscious that I was going to the Middle East at a very politicized time and I was a little bit cautious. Um, sure. 
because of that, but was then really amazed at just the level of um, friendliness I encountered and people who wanted to talk about the war, but also wanted to welcome me. And everyone who's been to Syria knows Syria is quite famous for its sort of, you know, hospitality, Um, or at least it was before the war, obviously. Uh, And I was just really amazed by how friendly these people were when at the same time my government was waging a war next door and sending refugees over into Syria. Mm. Um, And so that's sort of like the general atmosphere I got. And then I, and, and then Literally, I mean, the story of seeing Bashar al-Assad in person was I um, got to, I got off the bus um, at the Baramke bus station, which is where the buses used to arrive from Lebanon. I was on my own and I just found a taxi driver and asked him to take me to a hostel. So this is and just as you've arrived from Lebanon? From Lebanon. So right. I just got on, I've got on the bus. I went down to the Kola bus station in, in Beirut and yes. they said, take me to Damascus. Uh, they, they got on this, this bus to Damascus and went to the Baramki bus station, got off, found a hostel um, uh, in, my, in my guidebook and uh, asked the, the taxi driver to take me there. And as we got sort of about halfway there, the, the traffic was completely gridlocked and people started getting out of their cars. So I asked my driver, like, why, why have people got out of their cars? And they said, oh, the president is passing by. So everyone sort of went up to the, the verge of this sort of uh, underpass where Bashar was sort of like being driven. Well, actually, I mean, I, I think he was driving himself because um, that's what he does. Right, yeah. Did, and was waving out the window. And everyone was kind of clapping and cheering him. Now, this is, of course, only a few years after he'd come to power and a time when at least on the surface he was he was relatively popular or, or people wanted to seem <laughs> like yeah. he was, or the impression that he was popular. Um, but that was, I mean, it was just, it was just a really, a, a totally foreign experience for me, both the sort of the, 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 the hospitality, the, um, the, the, the live politics, I suppose, and not just in terms of the, the president waving out of his car window <laughs> as he's driving through the streets, but obviously, you know, everyone sort of being very excited about this, uh, whilst also, you know, behind that, there was this very present, uh, sense that this is what you should be seen doing, you know, the sort of the, the personality cult in the background and all that kind of thing. So sure. it, it, it was really interesting just as a, a place that was totally alien uh, to the kind of places I'd visited before at that age. And I've since been to many places like that. But um, yeah. I just found that truly, truly fascinating within a few hours, let alone a few days. Yeah, I can imagine going from a heavily politicized place like like the UK, as you say, in 2003 <laughs> and the, the protests, going to a completely different way of doing politics. That that must have been quite a quite a shock. Yeah, it was, but a good one. You yeah, know, it was, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. certainly wasn't sitting there feeling uncomfortable anyway. Quite the opposite. And and what also really got me was um, obviously there's the domestic politics side of things, but I've always been inter- interested in international relations, and of sure. course with the Iraq War going on next door, uh, that's all anyone wanted to talk about. So I could sit very comfortably in you know cafes in in the old city and and, and, and near the old city, and just chat to, to to random Syrians that I just met who would talk for hours about what was going <laughs> yes. on in Iraq, about U.S. politics. They knew a lot about U.K. politics and Tony Blair and things like that at the time. Um, and they were really interested in what I thought and they were really interested in giving me their thoughts. And, and, and that was just very exciting for someone that 
you know, is, is already quite politicized to go to what's clearly, like you say, a, a, a foreign culture that does politics differently. And yet you have that kind of commonality that you can talk about and, and debate. You know, we weren't yeah. agreeing on things. I wasn't just agreeing with what they said and they weren't agreeing with what I said. Um, so we just talked about that a lot. Wonderful. That and football, the other, the other oh, of universal course. currency that of you can course. talk to anyone uh, in Syria about. And do people know your team? Or did um, they? No, no. Although I must, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of Aston Villa for your, for your listeners. Um, I do apologise. Not a very well-known team. Although having said that, when I, when I taught in Aleppo, uh, I also coached like the junior football team. Amazing. And one of, one of my, my students who will now be sort of in his, I suppose, late teens, early twenties, uh, but I was eight at the time, right. started supporting Aston Villa. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I went back a few years later, again, before the war, but to visit the school. And he was sort of, I think, 13 by then, and he still supported Villa. So Good. Um, there's at least one Syrian Villa fan now. <laughs> well, well done. You've, um, <laughs> you've made someone rather depressed in terms of their sporting allegiances. I think that's probably the least of their problems if they're a Syrian, quite frankly. Um, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I fear. So, so then after that, Chris, you went back to you came back to the UK. You went to the LSE to do your your masters and your PhD. Right. Yeah. So, um, who were you studying with at the LSE at that time then? Well, I was very fortunate. I was one of the, the last people that was supervised by um, the late Fred Halliday. Um, and and he obviously is a you know, very well known scholar of the Middle East and international relations um, and nationalism theory. I mean, it actually, though I um, I applied to do international relations because that was the uh, sort of the broad topic I wanted to, to be focusing on. Uh, pretty quickly, my, my my research interest shifted towards sort of identity politics, at least for my my PhD. I, ironically, I think since then I've gone back into IR, but but at, at that time I really did focus on identity politics. And so Halliday is someone who had managed to bridge that investigation of both IR and uh, nationalism theory and identity politics um, was the, the obvious person to study under. Um, of course. I was very fortunate that he was still at the LSE at that point. I think he left uh, officially the year after I started and he um, supervised me from a distance for the last year and a bit of his life uh, before he sadly died during during the PhD itself. Well, I'm, I'm very jealous. He's someone that had a huge influence on me intellectually uh, reading reading his work when I when I started studying the the region and and traveling there and reflecting on it he's been a big influence so so mm. I'm very jealous but I, I'm glad that you got to to uh, to engage with him and I think some of those ideas actually come to come to the fore in your work because I think the more interesting side of what you're doing is that intersection of the two the intersection mm. of the international and the the sort of the ideas of of nationalism so. I, I guess he's had a big influence on your on your intellectual development then. I, I suppose so, yes, although I don't think I realised it at the time. I, I actually think it's more kind of a... So, so th th there's one of those ironies that when I was study un studying under him, I, w I was still quite young at the time. I think I, I think I started my PhD at about 23 or something like that. And I, right. I didn't really... Um, appreciate how much of a giant Fred was in the field um, until actually he died, uh, sure. and, and, and the and the outpouring of stuff. And, and maybe this is one of the things we do quite badly in uh, in our field, which is we wait until people are no longer with us before actually celebrating them and recognizing how significant they are. Um, I fear and, that's and a I'd, problem I'd read with some the academy. Of his work. Sorry, sorry. I'd, I fear I'd that's a that. problem with the academy more broadly. But um, yeah. sorry, go on. 
no, no, I agree. I agree completely. Um, and perhaps beyond the academy, perhaps mm. in life in general, who knows? Um, but but I, I'd read some of his work. I'd read sort of like um, uh, Nation and Religion and things like that that he looked at. Um, but I didn't really... Uh, look at his works like Arabia without Sultans and and, and um, uh, I forgot the name of the book now, but the book on was it Modernism and Dictatorship on, yeah. on Iran? Yes. Um, you, you know, I didn't look at those until after he died. And right. actually, you know, there, there's loads of things I would I like you would have liked to have asked him had I had I reached that stage in my kind of intellectual and academic development. Sure. Um, but of course, I, I hadn't. You know, as only a, a second year PhD student at, at that point. No, of course. Um, but but I think so. Actually, maybe the shape. I mean, I, I wondered almost sort of you know. Uh, a, a little bit sort of reflectively I wonder if I've allowed his ideas to shape my work subsequently because I didn't actually get to interact with him on those issues and so I've almost sought out his work right, and okay. looked at it and, and kind of digested it and, and let it feed into my own work almost in sort of you know, the, the absence supervisor rather than the present supervisor I, I don't know but I mean again that, that, that certainly happened subsequently it didn't happen at the time right okay I think I think there is something interesting to be said there. I, I think reading your work, I can certainly see, uh, I can certainly see a lot of Halliday in it. But it's interesting to hear you saying that that might not be necessarily a, a direct intentional thing. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. So uh, beyond beyond Fred, then who else was was a an influence on you intellectually? Would you say? Mm. I, I, I think um, in terms of. Again, I, I wear two hats, really, as you say. That it's around to sort of, I suppose, um, straddling that uh, those two worlds of identity politics and um, and uh, uh, I suppose international relations of the Middle East and, and international relations more broadly. I think in the identity side of things, uh, as you know from my work, I, I sort of. Uh, from quite an early age, kind of hitched my my uh, uh, myself to the, the the modernist stream of stream of thought or the instrumentalist stream of thought. So obviously, a lot of those sort of broad scholars like you know Benedict Anderson. Um, I liked you know, people like John Bruley. I thought his his work was absolutely fantastic. Sure, um, yeah. Uh, and and then later um, scholars like uh, Michael Billig that look at sort of you know everyday uh, nationalism and banal nationalism and things like that. I, I find that um, absolutely fascinating. It's sort of that 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 uh, I suppose more general level. Mm. Um, but that said, I have actually um, more recently started engaging a lot more with you know, the, the modern scholars. So actually, people who who I know you have. Um, uh, interviewed on this podcast you know people like Fanar Haddad and people like you know um, Danny Postel and Nader Hashim, um, Hashmi and their, their recent work on sectarianization you know I, I, I find you know those kind of almost recent nuancing of those old debates and actually um, I, I, I would argue anyway that they are approaching things from a far more um, I suppose conciliatory approach to those old modernists that I originally was drawn to, you know, I think, I think the older modernists were quite, um, yeah, confrontational even sure. with, uh, with other yeah. approaches, you know, I mean, a lot of them come from the kind of like intellectual Marxism of the sixties and seventies and so on, which does have a quite confrontational, you know, the world is black and white approach. Uh, and I think that, yeah. again, being, being a bit reflective on my own development, I think, you know, when I was a bit younger and looking for those kind of almost reductionist explanations, then, you know, that appealed to me, but actually, obviously, as, I, as I've grown older and, and, and read more broadly, I actually think that what's what is being written now on the subject need to be far more 
uh, I suppose, an attempt at, at balance or at least sort of recognition, recognizing the validity of, of uh, or, or the, the value that you can gain from those um, those other approaches that you might disagree with, um, like Anthony Smith and, and, and people like this, uh, uh, I actually, I, I have more time for. Um, so actually, there, there's been a bit of a, an intellectual evolution there uh, uh, on my side, Um which I think in many ways, uh, you know, going back to your point about Halliday, I think maybe Halliday himself did that. If you look at Halliday's earlier works, you know, again, in the sort of 60s, as well, also 70s and 80s, he is more of that sort of, you know, hard modernist yes. um, approach. But towards, you know, the end, especially when he began to look at like internet, you know, relations and historical sociology, I think there's more... Oh, maybe I'm just reading what I want to see into it, but I think I think there's a little bit more reconciliation there, although only a little bit, maybe only just compared to his previous positions, rather than uh, a full embracing of a, a kind of central or a, a, a more balanced perspective. Mm, yeah, I, I I think that that's quite interesting. You you saying that? I think there's there's some interesting stuff that that plays out in your work, and I. I can sort of see you oscillating between those two different, uh, th- those two different sets of research interests, and one of the reasons why I like the battle for Syria so much is that you managed to bring them together, and and I think that this this builds on a lot of these really interesting debates that that you've that you've just identified by scholars such as Fanar Haddad, Nadeh Hashmi, etc. And although it comes before the um, before the sectarianization thesis, I think there are a number of similarities to it in the sense that that what they set up is this this interaction of regional and domestic forces and the manipulation of, of all these different identity groups. And in a way, that's exactly what you're doing in the battle for Syria, I think. Y- yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, that's that, that's entirely sort of. I mean, it, 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 when I read the sectarianization book, I was like, oh, actually, yeah, I, that, I, I agree with this. I've, that's, that's what I've been saying. Um, they just put it, you know, they focus on a particular area, which is sort of you know sectarian identity. Whereas I was looking more sort of, I suppose, outside in at how sectarian identity um, has been a factor and how it's been manipulated uh, within this civil war by external actors. So it, it absolutely fitted in with, with what I was saying, which is why actually um, Morton Balbion approached me about writing the piece that we, we recently had published for Small Wars and Insurgency. Uh, and also, what's in um, a name we, we, piece. Yeah, we, yeah, what's in a name, exactly. And it fed into uh, the piece I've recently published for you guys, for SEPAD, about um, uh, sectarian, sectarianism as plan B. Yes. Um, because that really came about uh, for exactly that kind of process, whereby I had uh, done some empirical work looking at what was taking place on the ground in Syria during the Civil War and how uh, external actors like Saudi Arabia, like Iran, but also the US and Russia were... Um, uh, seemingly supporting groups of a particular identity for a particular reason, but actually, when you looked more closely, it was more, um, it was a bit more nuanced than that. But actually, sort of, like I say, it wasn't always their first intention uh, to, to, to only back groups with a, with a certain sectarian or religious or national identity. And and Morton kind of saw that and said, well, look, you've already said this in your book. Let's just sort of extract that and put it in an article that explicitly says that, um, which was great for me because he sort of identified something that I, I, I had consciously done, but because that wasn't the specific story I was telling, sure, uh, yeah. hadn't thought to sort of bring it out in that way. 
I think that it's a really interesting piece, and I'd, I'd strongly urge people to to read it if they haven't already, because I think it 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 pushes a lot of the assumptions that that people have about the the types of relationships that are going on across the region. And I mean, the, the front cover of the book I think is fascinating, and. Uh, for for those that haven't seen it, it's a number of hands creeping into Syria with uh, with the hands uh, depicting various flags with the various interests, and that that raises the number of assumptions about the type of relationships that those groups actually have with the uh, oh, sorry those states have with the groups that they're reaching out to, and that's where I think the article is really fascinating and challenging the the nature of those types of relationships. Thanks. I mean, that was that, that was that was the idea to really kind of, I, I suppose, um, unpack what what those relationships are like, and 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 certainly the work that I'm I'm beginning to look at now is, is going to take that a bit further, which is exactly as you say, Simon. It's kind of challenging those assumptions. Uh, you know, in many ways, um, especially Western commentaries, but also commentaries from within the the region as well, um, have been quite lazy in their in their assumptions about the relationship to identity and proxy warfare, as I know your your own project SEPAD is looking at, um, where there's this, this assumption that of course Iran will sponsor uh, Shia militia. That that that's their thinking. And you know, of course Saudi Arabia will sponsor sort of like explicitly Sunni groups. And indeed when we had the discussion um, in, when we launched SEPAD, I remember, um, I think it was Toby Dodge sort of saying, well, you know, this is what Iran does. And they did it, you know, they did that in Iraq. They immediately went to sectarianism. And, of, and my response to Toby was, well, yes, because in Iraq, that works. You've got the demographics on your side. You have yes. 60% of the population are Shia. So to explicitly sort of, you know, um, rely on uh, an exclusively Shia identity to mobilize people makes sense because you'll get, you know, you, know, you could get 60% of the population you know, on your side doing that in theory. You can't do that in Syria where the, where the, the you know, Sunni population is sort of, you know, 65-ish percent. Uh, well, if you add the Kurds, it's in the 70s. You know, the, the, the Shia population is between 1% and 2%. If you add the Alawis into that, it's only 12%. Mm. You know, if you appeal to an exclusively Shia identity and only back Shia groups with a kind of Shia chauvinism, your, your group will not win and you will be excluding... Um, a, a large number of potential allies, such as Christians, such as secular Sunnis, and 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 so on, and 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 that's why I say it, you know it's Plan B. It's not what the Iranians want to do. They they don't want to sort of exclude these people. It doesn't make sense. Sure. Uh, and and the same on the flip side, you know, with, with the Saudis as well. It, you know, in a in a in a mixed um, state, you might turn to. Uh, you know, sectarian groups, but that shouldn't be your first course of action. It's illogical because you'll be actually um, excluding large segments of the population that you need in order to win this conflict. Yeah, of course. And that, that paints a far more complex, far more nuanced picture of, of of contemporary politics, not just in Syria, but I think you see similar practices taking place across the region of, of, of complex uh, webs of, of relations and networks that are, I think, that are in dire need of, of more exploration. So I'm, I'm really excited that that's something that you're going to be exploring. Can you give us a, a little teaser of what's to come then, Chris? Uh, it, it's very early stages at the moment. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm looking to sort of um, basically expand what, what, what Morton and I were looking at. Um, I, I'm really looking at the, the relationship between those... Um, 
external and internal fighters in, in, in Syria. I mean, I actually, the, the, the book that I, I wrote, The Battle for Syria, the, the emphasis was really on the external players. Yes. And, and, and if I, I mean, if I were to criticize my own work, it's that there wasn't enough exploration at the internal dynamics. There was a recognition. I, I was never saying at any point that these people were puppets of external players. And I, and I emphasize that they were never just doing what, um, what the outside actors wanted to do. But beyond that, I didn't really explore actually, okay, how, how do these two interact? Um, what actually are the sort of the discussions that are had, how are they had, you know, Mm. how, how are they played out? And what I really want to do is explore that question a bit more, look at the, um, you know, you know, for example, the relationship between Russia and, and Assad. So we've got a relative clear idea of what Russia's role is, but how does Assad play into that? Actually, how, you know, yeah, how much is uh, uh, Assad pushing back? How much is the Syrian state itself an incredibly complex beast that doesn't just have one person at its head, uh, but actually has lots of different factions all competing for power and influence, and that feeds in and, and pushes back into the Russian relationship. So I really want to look at those kind of, and, and, and of course that is happening with every one of these relationships inside Syria, whether it's you know with the Americans and the the PYD whether it's with um, the, the, the Turks and the various rebel forces they've, they've supported, whether it's with Iran and its various militia. Uh, yeah, I, I really just kind of want to sort of, I suppose at a more micro level, really unpick that in order to see you know, how we, I mean, it feeds into your project very much, you know, how we understand proxy war and whether or not actually even the idea of proxy war is a useful term. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic, and something that I'm I'm certainly very eager to to see how you explore. But Chris, I'm conscious that we've taken up a lot of your time already, so I'm going to wrap this conversation up. But say thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with us. It's been absolutely fascinating to to listen to you uh, and to to hear the background to the battle for Syria. So I look forward to doing this again sometime, and uh, and and talking about your future work. So thank you so much. Thank you. And until next time, thank you for listening. Goodbye.